Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. This is a reboot, a re-edit of my conversations with David Sedaris in 2017 and 18 on the occasion of his new book, The Best of Me. Uh, sadly, I did not know this book was coming out, what with the election and and the, the and COVID and other distractions in this wretched year of ours. By the way, 40 days, 40 days as of today, December, whatever it is, until no one with any sense will be paying any attention to Donald Trump except the people he least cares about, MAGA. But I digress. So I didn't notice that David Sedaris uh, was putting out a new book um, that's actually a greatest hits called The Best of Me. And so I didn't contact him or his publicist, and I didn't get to chat I'm quite sure he's burnt out with publicity at this point. But I've been wanting to edit together and clean up our first two conversations. And although I would have loved to have heard him talk post-election to me about it, um, I don't get to do that. But here is an hour and a half or so of not safe for Terry Gross conversation with David Sedaris. You will, you will laugh, you will smile, you will groan a little bit and you will be really happy you spent this hour and a half. And if you are, please tell a friend. I'm not making this show so much anymore, but I'm, I really enjoyed these and I think other people will too who love David Sedaris as much as I do and perhaps you do if you've happened upon this. Among the things we talk about, and I'm looking at the back of an envelope here where I scribbled many, many things, are who writes his jacket flap copy, getting laughs on stage, a John Updike amazing quote about fame and celebrity. Uh, we go into greater detail about it, but part of it is celebrity is a mask that eats at the face. Uh, we talk about signing books for hours on end and why he does it and loves to do it. A little bit about good old Stormy Daniels, about being recognized in airports, about George Saunders, about our mothers, about going on late night and how he hates to go on television. Um, this looks like it says Diane's. I don't think we talk about any Diane's, so I don't know what that's about. We talk about the wonderful David Rakoff. Um, we talk about comedy in general and what makes a good joke and a bad joke and what makes an inappropriate joke and how people have come up and been offended by his jokes after readings. We talk about agents. We talk about Who Who Whoopi Goldberg and the concept of grace and graciousness. And so much more. We talk about what's good on pizza. So enjoy this. Happy New Year. 40 days till we are free. I hope this distracts you pleasantly for an hour and a half of those 40 days this is 15 minutes i'm jamie berger enjoy the show Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 38. I'm Jamie Berger, and my guest today 
is David Sedaris. New York Times bestselling humorist author. We spoke on the phone in May. Hello, could you connect me to David Sedaris' room? Uh, of course, his his room is a guest with us, sir. Yes, that's a guest, David Sedaris. Of course, what Good afternoon. Thank you for calling Lincoln Place. This is Aitona Ahmed, Director Call. Could you pl- uh, could you please try the room of David Sedaris for me? David who? Sedaris. S as in Sam. E D as in David. Okay, let me transfer you over. I got it. One moment. Sir. Great, thanks. The guest you are trying to reach is not available right now. Strike two. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling Langham Place, New York. This is Claudia. How many director call? Could you please try the room of uh, guest David Sedaris? Uh, Let me just see if we have that guest. How do you spell the last name? S as in Sam. E. D as in David. Do you need more? No, thank you. Great, thanks. One moment, please. Hello? Hello, David Sedaris. This is Jamie Berger from the... Hi, Jamie. I'm so sorry. I I had another interview, and I didn't know how to do the uh, pause thing on the phone. Oh, that's quite all right. Uh, I'm, I'm just glad I've reached you. Do you have another tightly scheduled one coming up? Because that would change how no. I approach this. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, so I don't. You may. Re- how do you spell your last name? Berger, with an E. B e r g e r. Yes. What's your address? My my physical address. Yeah, your home address. And then I gave David Sedaris my address. Um, zero one three seven six okay i'm sorry go on well thank you for asking um you may remember that we we met in worcester and i told you about the podcast i do about fame oh yes Uh uh-huh and so here i am finally reaching you i i wrote i wrote to your publicist today so i haven't uh, after writing a few times and I was like, so last chance, is this going to happen? And they were like, okay, how about three thirty? So I haven't done my homework quite as thoroughly as I'd like to, but I've been thinking about this for a long time. Oh, I was just wondering how long will we, will we be talking? Whatever works. It could be 10 minutes. It could be half an hour. It could be whenever you go to dinner. Episodes range from, you know, from five to an hour. Okay. All right. Cause I've got like uh, half an hour. That's beautiful. 
Because I have to go on TV tonight, so I have to get ready for my... What, what are you on tonight? Colbert. Oh, wonderful. They're taping it tonight. It won't go on till tomorrow. That's a good thing to remember, though. They're taping it tonight. So that way, you know what I mean? Anything can happen between <laughs> That's true. today and tomorrow. You know, so it could get bumped, or if it's really sucky... Maybe they'd say, you know what, let's just not, let's just not do, let's do them a favor and just burn that tape. (laughs) And the way things are going, we might not even be here tomorrow. You're right. I want to just preface by saying that I used to talk to people, because this is a topic, I do this show because it's a topic that's always interested me, intrigued me, kind of bothered me. And I used to talk about the, my ideal level of fame being would be to have David Sedaris 15 years ago. Of course, I've been saying that for a long time. So it's huh. long where 15 years ago where you get to. Well, it might have been 15 years ago, starting 10 years ago. I don't know where you publish <laughs> when you want in The New Yorker. You make a decent living. You can go on TV sometimes, but you can still be invisible in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's now, too. And you get to collaborate with people. Yeah. And, well, I know it's now, yeah. too. Yeah, you still can walk around the world without being, uh, you know, onslaughted right. to, to create a verb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's fun. It, so I'm glad to finally be talking to you because you used to be the example that I mentioned. I've been, I don't know if you, if you are tired of talking about the book or you're delighted to. I know that's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, after the reading, when you mentioned you thought of it as something that'd be great to read in a more of an I Ching fashion, just jumping in on random mm-hmm. spots, I've done that and I've really enjoyed it. And the thing that that one of the things that I come away with is, you know, as with your other work, it's 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 the intimacy that is so pleasing. Uh, but you don't talk, at least in this first of two volumes leading up to two thousand two about yourself as more than just a person in the world, not as a, as a public figure, as someone gaining success, as things like that. Is it something you just don't write about? Well, you know, I have to say that out of all the things that I was uncomfortable putting in the book, it was that made me the least comfortable. I mean, I did write about, you know, getting a review for our play in the New York Times and what that felt like and hearing that my book was on the bestseller list. And But a lot of that I kept out of the book just because um, I, it, that seemed much more intimate than anything that I wrote about, you know, about meeting someone at a laundromat and going home with them, you know, mm-hmm. to see much more revealing was my enthusiasm and my delight and my fear concerning that. I mean, I went to La Mama. I filmed this interview yesterday and I went to, they wanted to do it at a place that held significance for me. So I said, La Mama, which is a theater um, in East Village, where we used to do our plays. My sister Amy and I used to do our plays. And they had the archive there, which I was surprised to see it. It was, I had a, they had a folder on each of the plays that we had done at La Mama. 
and the plays got progressively thicker, you know, and filled with the very first one. It just had flyers Mm -hmm. and a list of people who came this night and the other night. And then they got thicker and there were were flyers and magazine profile. I mean, reviews and magazine profiles and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of press. But, but I remember the woman who, who got us started there at La Mama, her name was Meryl Vladimir. Mm-hmm. And she said, I did a reading there. And then she called me in later and she said, I'm going to make you a star. <laughs> and it's just what you dream of when you're a kid. You know, you dream of somebody saying that. And I remember uh, Amy and I, we were brought into the William Morris agency. And the guy said, you're a, he turned to Amy and he said, you're a star. And he turned to me and he said, you're a star writer. And again, it speaks to your 12-year-old self, right? That this is the dream, that you're in this office and that this person is saying this thing to you. And, you know, I think one of the reasons, too, I didn't put it in the book because it's like, well, I'm pretty sorry excuse for a star. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, people would laugh and then say, what, you think you're a star? But... So I think that's one of the reasons that I didn't put it in the book because again, I'm sorry, excuse for one, but still, uh, hearing those words from somebody was just so heady. It just, mm-hmm. I, and you want to believe them, but then you're afraid to believe, believe them at the same time. I, uh, you, you think, well, you're crazy if you think that, but then you think, but wait, I think it too. Oh, Yeah. And and then you don't, and then you do. And again, you're right. Like the the level of of whatever it is that I have is a perfect level. You know, sometimes you go to the airport and they're like, "Are you the writer?" And sometimes they're like, "Sorry, I can't." I'll see hey, middle seats. All we've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to. I had. <laughs> I I had to spell your name calling the front desk. So that's a sign of of a healthy anonymity. Still. Yeah. Uh, Right. And then there are other people that, that say, uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of sweet that people will say, well, you're not registered under your own name, are you? I've been, <laughs> I, I, I often do commercials for, when I go on tour, I do a commercial for whatever pleases me, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'll be in a really great hotel and I'll do a commercial for it. I'll go on stage and I'll say, you know, if you have anybody coming to town or if you ever, you know, need to celebrate something, you need to go to the Biltmore Four Seasons. I said, now this is a hotel. And I go on and on about it. No one's ever called me at the hotel. Nobody's ever pestered me in any way. Like nobody, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm surprised. Fame just exists in other people's minds. Mm. And it's true. When you meet somebody, when I meet somebody who is, you know, Who's who I consider to be famous? I'm very aware of people looking at that person. Mm-hmm. That person's not aware of it at all. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm just thinking that this person is so huge, and they're not thinking that. They're just thinking, "Oh, look, we're out for coffee together, and we're getting to know each other." Yeah, yeah. And after a few minutes, it it, it becomes just that with a gracious person. Yes. I mean, a gracious person will see that you're nervous and they'll, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, like a name dropper, but 
Whoopi Goldberg, I said something nice about Whoopi Goldberg in the New York Times, and then she sent these cookies to my house in England. Aww. And she and she said, uh, you know, if you're in New York, we should have dinner. And I was going to be in New York in a couple of days. And so we went to dinner. And I was a wreck because <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg did this one-woman show in, like, 1984. It was brilliant. I mean, it was yeah. brilliant. I mean, it had a huge effect on me. And I watched it over and over and over and over again. It was on HBO. HBO had just started. And, uh, and so I met her, and I was nervous. And she was so gracious. She just doesn't allow for it. And she just makes herself human to take that away from you. She doesn't, it's not doing her any good for you to be nervous in front of her because you're not being yourself. And so a gracious person like her, that's the first thing on their list is to make you yourself again. Where, and, and an ungracious person, they don't care. They just right. keep you that right. way. Right, and uh, yes, and and then there's the super ungracious who would prefer that you stay uncomfortable. Right. So, with that in mind, seeing as you just did Colbert, how, I mean, how was that experience? I know you've you used. To, I remember oh, seeing you on tonight. Letterman. What? I'm doing it tonight. Oh, I thought you already recorded. No, no, no. I can't wait to set. I already recorded it because I. Whenever I agree to go on TV, I'm like, damn it, why did I do this? Why did I say I would do this? <laughs> your your Letterman appearances were always very pleasing to me. Really? Uh, I oh, mean, yeah. because he was one of those people that, you know, you don't see him until you're out there. Yeah. You know? Where John Stewart would come into your dressing room and hang out, he remembers your friends' names, <laughs> and he just gets you really comfortable and says, let's continue this on stage. Nice. And then one time on, on John Stewart, I said, I'm, can I tell a joke? He said, yeah, but don't tell it to me now because I don't want a fake laugh. And I'll, I'll set you up for it. And he set me up for the joke. He's a lovely, lovely person. Just really, um, because not everybody's an actor and not everybody is fast on their feet and not everybody is comfortable. You know, I think sometimes TV people think like, eh, it's just, you know, it's just TV. But the, the problem, too, is it, it's not that the audience didn't come to see me, right? I, I was on, um, I had to go on that Jimmy Fallon show, mm-hmm, yeah. okay, and Reese Witherspoon was on. Now, that's a star. Now, that's who people came to see, yes. right? And so they didn't come to see me. And so when they're like, who? Because the people who go to those shows, they live in New Jersey and they live on Long Island and they have company in town. And so they got the tickets. They got tickets to a taping of the show. And they have no idea who I am. And they're just taking all their cues from the host. If the host seems to like you, then they'll like you. If he doesn't, then they won't. And it's all, you know, it's all prearranged. Like there's a pre-interview and you show up and they have you know, his questions and your answers written on a sheet of paper. And if, if, if your answer, you don't have to be verbatim, but if your answer on the telephone was, was a minute long, it better not be a minute and 10 seconds long because then he'll just cut you off, you know, and change and make a joke about what you were just saying. And there goes your whole setup to the story. And you just sit in there. It's bad enough when that happens at a dinner party, but this is on TV. 
Do I sound panicked enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I promise you, you're going to be fine. I can't imagine. I, I wish I was you. I wish I was anybody who didn't have to go on TV tonight. Very interesting. But will you, you assuming you don't feel awful, will you feel great, great afterwards? I'll feel relieved afterwards that it's over. I mean, I'm not afraid of, I know Stephen Colbert from when he was with my, my sister at Second City. And, and, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen him in a while, but, you know, it's not like we talk on the phone or anything like that. But if he saw me on the street, he would say, David, and I would say, Stephen. So <laughs> it could be worse. Yeah. Actually, I, I was going to ask you about something about you. So you and Amy... You know, you you went to William Morris. You 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 were you wanted to be public. People. They called us in. Right. They called us in, and I never signed with them. I already had like a literary agent who I was flying with. Right. My question though is: so you and Amy wanted this public life. How do how did Paul and your mom and dad take about take to being famous and or infamous? Um. Well, like my brother. My brother Paul really likes it, you know. I mean, he likes the. And my dad likes it, you know. We don't always do stuff that he wishes, you know. Like he'll call Amy and say, "Why'd you have to make yourself ugly?" You know, Jesus, you're a beautiful woman. You get on TV and you got the hump and you got the mole with the <laughs> hair coming out of it. Why the hell did you do that? And Eric will call me. Why did you? Yeah, why? When I first started on the radio, why did you have to talk about that? Why did you have to say you were gay? Why did you have to do that? Are you rubbing people's noses in it? Nobody wants to hear that. And again, it's not like my dad's like Mr. Radio. Like he doesn't, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to take, you know, if it was like how to design a computer, yeah, give me, uh, please give me your thoughts. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know anything about entertaining people or, or writing. But he likes, he likes the thing like, oh, he loves getting people free stuff. Like, oh, I can get him to send you a book or no, I can get you tickets. How many do you want? 15? That's no problem. I'll get you 15 tickets. So he likes that. I love you. You talked, yeah, you wrote recently about or talked somewhere about how, you know, when you were in the New Yorker, but weren't getting a review in the Charlotte Observer, he didn't think you were famous. Well, no, what happened is I was on the New York Times bestseller list and he said, well, you're, I said, I'm bad. I said, I'm, I'm number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, you're not number one on the Wall Street Journal list. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, you know, the Wall Street Journal list isn't really the one that, that counts, you know, for book people. Ah, oh, baloney. Like anybody, any other father would be like, oh my God, I can't believe you're number one on the New York Times. So that's, that's great. And I mean, but to say we are not number one on the Wall Street Journal, but that's my dad and he's always been my dad. And I would be surprised if he'd said anything else. Speaking about, about your, yeah, and, and we love him out here in the world. Uh, we do. But at, your mom makes me think of my mom who died about, what, eight years ago. And there are still things, because she's the person who got what I was always trying to do very well. But I, I, there's always this feeling still remaining that I never got to really show her something. How, how old were you when she died, if I may go a little dark? Sure. Um, I was 
30, let's see, I was 33 when I moved to New York. I was 34 when my mother died. And so I hadn't published a book and I hadn't, um, you know, I hadn't had anything pub. I mean, I'd had a couple of little things published in magazines no one's ever heard of, but I didn't, you know, she certainly didn't uh, see her investment pay off. You know? I mean, she was very supportive that way. Mm-hmm. And did you have, or do you still have feelings about that? Like, do you wish she had seen more of it? Yeah, I mean, she didn't. I just wrote about that in The New Yorker. I mean, it hasn't come out yet, but we're, but it was about th- that in part. It was mainly about uh, my mother's drinking, but then it was about, too, how I would have loved to have spoiled her. You know, I mean, being in now in a position to do so, you know, just to take her places that she had never been before. And, you know, if my mother were alive right now, I would say we're going on tour and we leave in two weeks and I've got all the tickets and everything. And you're going to be introducing me on stage every night. Uh, and my mother would have loved that. And she would have, man, to have an audience. I mean, she's the one who really taught us that when you walk into the dry cleaner, everybody who's in there is your audience. Really? Right? They're not, yeah, they're not, they're not just people. They're your audience. And are you going to win that audience or are you going to, you, you turn your back on them. Did she teach you I, that by example or did she say that? She taught it by example, but also it was just sort of, I mean, just the way that she could, it was, it was like I said, it's the difference between treating people. Like if I remember on trial for murder and then I'm talking about it later, I'd say, so I turned to the audience and said, (laughs) I I turned to the audience and said, how could I have killed him? I never even met him. Like, I wouldn't (laughs) think I turned to the jury. I would think I turned to the audience. And that's something that I get (laughs) from my mother. (laughs) A firing squad, you know, so I turned to the audience and I said, I don't need a blindfold. That's a tough way to look at the audience. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, I have seen you read a couple times, and I, I love that you bring in jokes that you're told. And I love that some of them are challenging to your base. <laughs> um, in Worcester, you told the pizza joke and your reaction to it. Uh-huh. Uh, I, should we have you tell it? Or else people won't know. Would you want to? Do you think you on the spot? Can you tell the the, the pizza joke in your? Oh yeah. So I was I was um, doing the show and I was in New York State. I was in oh, gosh, it's right outside of the city. Um, golly, I don't remember the name of the town right now. But uh, and this kid came with his gay father, mm-hmm. and the kid was eleven years old. And he said, "I got a joke for you." He said, "What's good on a pizza, but not on pussy?" And I said, I beg your pardon? What's good on a pizza but not on pussy? And I was thinking, well, lots of things. You know, <laughs> mushrooms, piping hot cheese. Mm-hmm. And he said, crust. And I, I couldn't... I mean, one of the things that was... The, the whole reason I wrote about that is that he has no idea what's good on a 
pizza, but not on pussy. Right. And he's telling, and his dad has no idea. He knows what's good on a pizza. Pardon? Yeah. I said he knows what's good on a pizza. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he doesn't know. And so none of us had really (laughs) any idea what was good on a pizza, but not on pussy. But... But crust is probably what bad. Me was, what killed me was his, how proud he was and how proud his dad was of him. And I thought, I don't know, I had, that, that, that seemed weird about it to me. But so much has come from that because I told that joke one night and somebody said, my mother heard me say the word pussy when I was 10 years old. And she made me eat a bar of lava soap with oh. a knife and fork. Isn't that oh. great? <laughs> a so, bar of lava soap with a knife and fork. That's that's <laughs> horrible. So so uh, what I enjoy because I guess I enjoy groans and awkwardness is the the audience was a little stunned, <laughs> you know, th- by the joke, not by your reaction to it. It made it better, but is that a goal? Do you like that reaction? No, but I kind of insist. I kind of insist on, like, I think that that's an interesting and funny story. And if you don't, then, you know, that's okay and stuff. But I don't, I, I get a lot of letters from people. It's like, I heard you on the radio and I heard you tell that Santa elf story. And that's what I was hoping for when I came and bought it. And instead, you told a joke that I won't even get into. It's so filthy. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, you can't, if I told that joke and nobody laughed, right, I wouldn't tell it again. But I was there, okay? And it's the biggest laugh of the night. And so you have been using it on the tour? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was there. So don't, just don't tell me that it wasn't funny and that nobody laughed. Because people do that a lot. I was, and no found it funny. He, yeah, you did. And I made note of it. But I don't understand getting upset by language. I, 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 I'm not a person who is offended. Um, not even like if someone uses the word faggot. I, you know, I, I, I don't, offended is not what I feel, right? I mean, if, if somebody... If somebody, let's say, rolls down the window and says, get out of the road, you faggot. Now, I'm not offended by that. I I don't like it at all, but I'm not offended is not the right word for me to use. Um, I I don't know. There's another word for it. And so I think, really, were you offended when I told the pussy joke? It's hard for me not to. I, I, I try to avoid bringing people misery by bringing in the president. But, and, but when you talk about offending with words, it's hard not to, to, to think to go there. Um, do you think you're going to talk about politics tonight? I don't know. I, I, I feel like... Talking about politics, I feel like I probably read the same things that you read, and we probably sound alike if we were to talk about politics. I mean, how many times have uh, 
have I found myself in a conversation lately where, oh, the person just said the line I was going to give, so I'll give this line, but they were just about to give that line. So it's a mishmash of stuff that we've heard and we've, like Bill Maher, it's like, please talk about politics. Please. Sarah Vowell, please talk about politics. Oh, God, yes. But I don't feel like I'm an original thinker in that way. I don't think I'm saying anything that your cousin hasn't said. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is because I really appreciate that uh, Stephen Colbert and uh, Seth um, Blanking uh, have decided. Yes, have decided to go there. And, yeah, you know, instead of you know, they're they're Middle America late night TV, and they're like, no, fuck this. Because I've been on other shows before where like the, the, the host is like very clear, like he does not. He does not take sides, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, that was funny. Like that, I wrote a, I wrote a story about the election that I was reading on my tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, every night there would be people who would walk out. And I would think, who did you think I voted for? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my sister Amy had, you know, something on her Instagram account one time. And I couldn't believe the hateful things that people wrote in. And again, I thought the same thing. Like, who do you think she voted for? Yeah. I mean, what, why would you think for one moment that she would vote for Donald Trump? But they're there to be angry. That's why they're on her Instagram. <laughs> You're right. It's a hobby. <laughs> it's a hobby. Yeah. Um, well, I, I look forward to seeing you. I hope the world doesn't end and it won't get bumped. I would be fine with me. <laughs> if the world ended or you got bumped? If, if the world has to end for me to get bumped, I'm fine with that too. <laughs> I can't, I just can't tell you how much I dread it. And I just want more than anything. I just want it to be over. But you like performing in front of a, at a reading though, or don't you? Yeah. No, I love that. But it's different. The audience came to see me. Right. I'm exactly who they came to see. So I've already won in a sense. Maybe I can give you a little something to take with you to, to go on tonight. And think of that, the fact that you're not Meryl Streep on the show, but you're a bonus. You're an unexpected pleasure. Well, I guess that's, you know, the thing to do is, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I often feel like when I'm on stage and let's say I've, done a show and there's a q and a i it's, i'm not even thinking about it i'm just kind of being myself and then afterwards i think wow i mean especially you, you know so many things in my life all along the way said just don't be yourself and you'll be okay mm. just cover up who you are and you'll be okay but then to be to make a name for yourself just by being completely yourself yeah. Um, and so that's the thing is when you go on TV, you just have to think like, wait a minute, if I'm myself, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. The problem is trying to bend myself to somebody else's will or trying to make myself likable to people who I don't know anything about. That's just a losing game, you know? Yeah. So all you can do is go out there and be yourself, but sometimes you have to remind yourself to be yeah. yourself. Who that is. <laughs> 
I mean, at least I know who that person is. Did you see that um, feud miniseries about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis? Oh, no. Go ahead. It's so good. And I thought it was going to be campy, but it's not at all. And there's a point at the end where Joan Crawford says, I spent my whole life being Joan Crawford, this woman who I invented. And when I'm alone, I don't know who I am. And it, was, it just tore your heart right out when you heard her say that. And, and Jessica Lange is amazing in this show. Do you watch it. It's so good. Yeah, I, I remember reading about it and then forgetting about it. Yeah, that, that sounds, yeah. I love Jessica Lange, so that's a great. Yeah, she is superb in this. You can't take your eyes off her. Yeah. The Postman Always Rings Twice was a pretty formative high school experience for me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, try to have a little fun tonight. And okay. maybe I'll see you in Brattleboro in the fall. Oh, that'd be terrific. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Less than a week after we recorded, I got a lovely postcard in the mail. If you want to see the picture on the front of it, go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. The words on the back will remain between David and me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 59. Episode 59 also marks the end of our second year anniversary month, and I'm very pleased to bring you the guest who was right around our first anniversary, David Sedaris, back for another conversation uh, to go along with his new book, Calypso. Beyond introducing him as a best-selling author and someone you really should see perform live if you get a chance... I'd like to read a couple of short segments that will help clarify things we talk about in the conversation. Um, the first is from Theft by Finding, which is the first volume of his diaries that came out about a year ago. Uh, the first volume ranges from 1977 to 2002. And because I didn't know if I, they, I was going to be able to get a copy. It was pre-pub date. Uh, the publishing date for Calypso was yesterday, May 29th, 2018. I didn't know that I was going to get my hands on a copy. So I was going back and re-listening to his diaries, which I have on audiobook as I drove around our little valley. And the day before we spoke, I did get my hands on a copy of the book and I sped read it in a couple days before we talked. But I was also listening to Theft by Finding, this first volume of Diaries. So I was I was experiencing David Sedaris at age 34 and 60-something at the same time. And right before we spoke, I was listening to the end of 1992 uh, and beginning of 93 in his diary, uh, which was a moment at which he started to experience rather grand success. And I'd like to read one entry from that. December 24th, 1992, Raleigh. 
Yesterday morning, my story aired on NPR's Morning Edition. Ira and I had been on the phone the night before, trying to decide which cuts to make. I have an allergic reaction to my voice. But the singing was all right. Hugh's friend, Marion, phoned after the 740 broadcast and said how much she liked it. A minute later, I got a call from a switchboard operator who was late for work on account of sitting in her parked car and listening to me. She said she'd already phoned NPR to say good things, but thought she'd reach out to me as well. They played the story again at 940, and then I was called by William, Alan, and several strangers. The moment I'd start talking to someone, call waiting would act up. At 10, I left for the first of today's four cleaning jobs, and when I returned at 6, my machine was full of messages, most of them from people I don't know, who'd look me up in the phone book. A woman from Oregon called, a guy who runs a theater in Philadelphia, a writer for a TV show, two NPR stations left messages saying they were flooded, their word, with calls from people wanting to get in touch with me. A stranger from Rochester called, stuttering, asking for a tape. It was all I had ever wanted. Then Hugh and I left for the airport. But that's one entry, and I did want to share one more. March 9th, 1993, New York. Roger Donald called from Little Brown to say he would like to negotiate a two-book deal. To celebrate, I bought a denim shirt and thought it amazing how quickly one's life can change. I never thought I'd want a denim shirt. And here's a passage from the essay Little Guy that we talk about in the conversation from the new book Calypso. I was sitting around the house one evening when I suddenly wondered how tall Rock Hudson was. It's not that often that I think of him, but I'd recently rewatched the movie Giant, so he was on my mind. One of the things I'll never understand is why a search on my computer might be different from a search on someone else's, my sister Amy's, for instance. She'll go to Google, type in, what does a 50-year-old woman look like? And summon pictures I can't believe they allow on the internet, unlocked, where just anyone can see them. I don't mean playboy shots, but the sort you'd find in Hustler. It's as if she'd asked, what does the inside of a 50-year-old woman look like? I did the same search and got pictures of Meg Ryan and Brooke Shields smiling. I said to Hugh, this computer of mine is so wholesome. And you'll soon hear why that bared reading. I also, at the risk of being self-serving, because it is self-serving, so I guess risk is, is the wrong word. I, I want to talk about something that's in the conversation, so I can't, uh, and the conversation's edited, edited, and it's with Ed, so I can't take it out, and I don't want to, but it needs some clarification. At one point, we talk about uh, the late, wonderful writer and human being, David Rakoff, and I talk about how I knew David in college, and then... We were estranged for many years, and then he came back into my life. And what I didn't mention in the conversation was just how amazingly gracious he was when he came back into my life. He had become a very you know, noted, celebrated, dare I say famous writer. And I was in San Francisco doing my thing. 
And he emailed me out of the blue. I don't think it was as out of the blue as it might seem in that we share a closer friend in common named James. And I'm thinking James, uh, I don't, it's all very vague. I have a terrible memory, but maybe James had sent David, uh, a book, a picture book with some text about a dog named Bo called Bozarts, a dog of mine who became a neighborhood hero in the mission in San Francisco and an art star for a little while. But David wrote me and told me how much he had loved the book and that he had read my short story close and asked if I was ever coming back to New York, if I ever came back to New York and whether we have a drink sometime. And so I wanted to bring that up, that he, he out of the blue, contacted me to, to, to say nice things about my work, as, as if he almost knew that I carried around a certain bitterness that we'll talk about, you'll hear about in the conversation with David Sedaris. There's one more part to this story that has to do with my weird and awful memory, and I'd love to hear from someone to help me clear this up out there in Radio Land, Podcastio Land. After that, David R. and I, would email and try to meet up for a drink when I was back visiting in New York. And we had several false starts. Uh, I had to cancel once. I think he was out of town once. But I have a memory that is not marked by email or anything but memory that we finally did have a drink at a bar on the corner of 23rd and right down the block from the Chelsea Hotel, uh, 7th that there was a newly refurbished kind of somewhat mod, but somewhat, somewhat like oak and brass rail kind of bar. And we met in between my rushing around the city and had a beer, a glass of wine, I don't remember, and said hello and then went our separate ways. But I, there's part of me that wonders, I sometimes remember dreams as if they were memories and I construct them. What I'd like to know from any of you is if you remember that bar. I don't think there's there's a bar like that on that corner now, although I don't spend much time in Chelsea anymore. So give me a shout out, people, if you know that that that, that was there, and then I will know that that did happen. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my recent conversation with David Sedaris. Hi, Jamie. Hi, David. I, in the last couple of days, have been listening to the diaries while I speed read through Calypso, which I got um, from Catherine just the other day. Uh, and I happened last night, as I drove through New England, to be listening to you to 1992 to 93. And thinking about it while I read Calypso made me think of, of the old adage that bankruptcy happens slowly and then all at once and it seems like success happened for you in that way that right then at the end of 92 and into 93 suddenly book deal new yorker npr denim shirt <laughs> <laughs> i love that um and then you 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 wrote and when you spoke it in the audio you say you know, it's all i ever wanted and there's a certain melancholy to that in that these things seem to be all happening at once, but it's still, it, it, it's, I don't know. I'm just wondering what, do you remember what that felt like? Yeah. I mean, it felt, 
uh, I mean, it's a little bit scary because then you think, oh, look, I just got what I wanted. Now what? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you're glad when, when it happens, you're very glad to have it. But I mean, I guess part of you thinks like, oh, now will my, the rest of my life be downhill from here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And, 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 uh, and, but I, I think I stopped dreaming in that way at that point, right? Because if I was riding my bike and if I was taking a walk, I mean, if I was, or if I was cleaning my house, if my mind was, was free to wander, I fantasized about going on a book tour. I fantasized about having a book published. I fantasized about being on the radio. I fantasized about being in a room and people say, look, I think that's, <laughs> that's it, look, that's, I was in Calgary the day before yesterday, walking down the street and I heard these women say, that was David Sedaris. What? But they didn't say who? <laughs> <laughs> she said, what? <laughs> um, uh, and that's all I ever dreamed about. So, to to get it, it's and I guess you start thinking, but but that's all. But I got what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like so now when I walk along, I, I don't fantasize about that because I already have it. But mm-hmm. I don't think I don't fantasize about winning a Tony Award. I don't I don't really I don't want a Tony Award. Mm-hmm. I don't fantasize about you know uh, and the Academy Award for Best Picture those <laughs> two because I don't I. I don't want those things yeah. enough to pursue them. That said, do you get a tingle when you hear those two women whispering? Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's what my childhood self wanted. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me. I mean, the amount of attention that I get, it's, it's nothing compared to, you know, what you would get if you did a shampoo commercial. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And it's just well-meaning people who just want to come up at a restaurant and say, you know, uh, your books, you know, mean a lot to me. And I'm delighted to hear that. I can tell. I've, you know, as you may recall, I've, I've, I've had you sign a couple of times. <laughs> and you, you take so much. You're so generous with everyone in the line, uh, which is really nice. I, it, I, I would imagine it just can get very long at the end. Well, but see, that's what I wanted, too. I wanted people to stand in line to say how much they loved me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Should I pretend I don't want that? (laughs) And and I'm always confused. You know, when a lot of people don't like it or they'll say, well, I'll sign books for 20 people. I know this woman who who said, I can't sign books for more than 20 minutes. She said, because the audience, you know, people come up and then I just take on all of their problems and I take on all of their, uh, their traumas and it's exhausting. It's physically exhausting. And I'm thinking, well, you're doing something wrong. I mean, (laughs) I can have somebody stand in front of me and cry about a miscarriage they had 10 minutes later. I'm back at the hotel. I sleep like a baby. (laughs) It wasn't my miscarriage. Well, I, I don't, I mean, sometimes people will tell you, oh, I don't know, like a sad story or a, I mean, an interesting, I mean, there's a perfect kind of, it's a perfect length of conversation, I think. 
you know, like if you're at a party and you know you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and then you talk to them for a minute and then you think, what happens when this isn't interesting anymore? Mm-hmm. And what happens when I want to get away or they want to get away? How are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? How are we going to work that out? But this is easy because I just push the book back to you and we're finished. <laughs> and it usually works. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can really count on, well, generally speaking, I find you set your pace and then you can't change your pace. So I have a friend in Los Angeles and I met him in a reading years ago and he, I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm looking for a job. I can't, I want to work in show in entertainment law and I can't get a job. So I said, well, let's see if we can't get you a job. So I brought him on stage with me in LA and I said, this is Drew and he wants a job in entertainment law. And I asked him some questions on stage and then afterwards, a lot of people gave him their card, but he didn't get a job out of it. So a year later, I said, let's try this again. And when he walked to the podium, I said, you may not have noticed, but Drew has a limp. I said, that's because he's handicapped. And some of you in the far back of the theater can't see it, but he's really good looking. Now, I said, you and I, we all know most handicapped people are ugly. I said, but not Drew. So if you hire him, you tick that box that says handicapped person in my office and good-looking young man in my office. And he got a job at MGM. Oh, my God. So now every time I go to Los Angeles, he, he buys like 15 books to have signed for his associates. And so that can take a long time. And so people who were in line think, okay, that's how much time we get. And so it's really hard to break that pace. And it just occurred to me on this last trip, I thought, you know, I think I'll meet him in the dressing room before because that's easier to do it there than to set that kind of a pace with the audience. I mean, with a book signing line. Yeah, I I feel like people are usually pretty generous. And and yes, it must be nice to have people want to tell you you're you're my favorite writer or whatever. Um, One great thing I saw is last year when George Saunders had such a huge onslaught of attention for his last novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, I went to a reading and it was, it was the longest book line I've ever seen. No offense. Yours is really long. Um, <laughs> but toward, I waited towards the very end cause we had just spoken for this show and I wanted to say hello. And after this, like three hours or more of whatever, a young man, maybe freshman in college came up and he very shyly tried to get his book signed and run off and George stopped him and, and asked him about himself and after all that time and I just thought that's great um, I, I like the uh, I really like the ep- your episode with George and I thought it was really good he's such a wonderful person he is a really really wonderful person and he he I, I love the way he talks about having to be uh, brought down from being full of shit after mm-hmm. success uh, yeah, no, he was saying how when he goes on a book tour, you know, it's not natural to be getting that attention and then it fucks you up in a really fundamental way and lets you believe you're worthy of all that attention. And see, I feel that when I'm on every tour and then I come home and then he will have to say to me, like, you're not on tour anymore. And I finished my tour in the fall and then I was going to a um, an event um, somebody was doing an event at the uh, uh, Royal Festival Hall or 
something like that in London. And I got, he and I were going and I got dressed and Hugh said, you're not the one on stage tonight. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked at what I was wearing and I was like, right. You were a little dandified. The tails were too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I may know the. well, you wore something with tails at a reading. Uh, recent, uh, a couple years ago. Well, this is a jacket I got that's made out of two jackets split down the middle and sewn together. And one half has a tail and the other half doesn't. Yeah, I, I think you talked about it. Or a jacket like it. Some bizarre piece like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's always our show if we want it to be, to an extent. Well, yeah, but sometimes you don't want to take focus away from the person who's on stage. You know, but it's a, but you have to kind of, um, it isn't natural to get that amount of attention and, but it feels really good to me. But again, it would deform you if, if, if it was all the, who was it that said, um, oh, it was, uh, it was an article that I was reading somewhere or other. I think about, it was an article about Donald Trump and there was a quote in there. And it was um, it was by uh, okay John Updike, and it was like celebrity is a mask that eats away at the face. Is that what it is? It's a John Updike quote, and it was in the New York Times and or, or the or the New Yorker, and it was an article about Trump. Hmm. Wow, that's right up my alley, isn't it? Uh, thanks. I I getting you know I remember last time we talked and about the 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 fantasy of being you know, uh, acclaimed enough that you get acclaim and not so much that you can't be anonymous. I find that I'm noticing since then in your writing that you really, uh, I feel like you would never want to ever, you, not one, you would never want to give up the anonymity of, of speaking to people in airports or other places, even though they drive you crazy. Wait, first I'm going to read that whole quote to you because my friend just found it. Celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. As soon as one is aware of being somebody, to be watched and listened to with extra interest, input ceases and the performer goes blind and deaf in his over-animation. Let's try that again. Celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. As soon as one is aware of being somebody, to be watched and listened to with extra interest, input ceases and the performer goes blind and deaf in his over-animation. Mm-hmm. Ow! Mm-hmm. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? It's, it's the world we're living in. Uh, a version of that that, that I, I felt as you were saying it is when I've been on stage and I get a laugh, I immediately stop being funny. Because the huh. self-consciousness... It doesn't blind me, but it it has it hits me like a deer in the headlights, and I feel un- unworthy, and then can't be funny anymore. It's one of the reasons my performance huh. career had a limit uh, to it. Yes, you don't seem to have that problem on stage. Well, you know, there's always a danger because uh, a couple times on this last tour that I just finished, I would meet people. One way or the other, like one night I was signing books for this guy and he was, um, we got to talking and it turned out that he did some stand up, which I, I wouldn't have pegged him as that guy, you know? And I said, well, why don't you do some 
why don't you open for me? Why don't you just get up there in 10 minutes and do some stuff? And, uh, and he did, and he kind of, it was interesting how he kind of became a completely different person when he hit the mic than he was backstage. And I don't think he'd ever performed in front of that many people before. But it was interesting to watch him. I have a little period and you know, when I do Q&A, and just before, after the reading and before the Q&A, I usually do some shtick, you know, that, that I, I, I hone throughout the course of a tour. Um, but that's, um, the only time that I really just try to talk and get a laugh out of what I'm saying. I mean, normally I would do it from what I'm reading right. and I don't really trust it so, because when you do get a big laugh, you think, God, I would have had to work a month to get that laugh on paper, mm-hmm. but instead I just said it and I got a bigger laugh. Yeah. But you, do you want to become that person? Do you want to become a comedian? I mean, nothing wrong with no, I, you know. I, but I don't. It's not what I had in mind for myself. Exactly. I I tried it for a year in San Francisco after a you know after doing performance stuff, dance company and monologue, and and it was miserable it, because it was all about trying to you know laugh, get a laugh, and then another laugh, another laugh, and that. Well, plus, I feel like if you're, um, you know, another comedian uh, I invited to open for me, and I said, don't don't tell people that you're a comedian, and don't, just get out there, you're the guy who's introducing me, and if you're funny, people will laugh, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like nine times out of ten, if I'm backstage and I'm getting an introduction, and people say, get ready to laugh. I'm backstage thinking, you're killing me here. <laughs> I, w- I would rather it be somebody's idea to laugh. I don't, yeah. I don't want that, that kind of a setup. If someone says to me, yeah, you're never, you're, you know, this is the funniest person ever, to, then I cross my arms immediately. And I think, yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love doing things like hosting. I'm about to uh, do the first live recording of, of this show, but it's just going to be like a variety show of readers, performers, and musicians, and I'm just going to introduce them and play some clips from the first two years. But emceeing is so great because you don't have to try to do anything except move the show along and get the next person mm-hmm. up. And if something funny comes up, that, I, 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 don't, I don't freeze up in that situation. Um, and that, that's just so much fun because I'm just... Where are you going to do it? Uh, at a little... Uh, a bu- there's a big uh, arts and entertainment complex that's grown in the the gigantic town of Greenfield right next door to our tiny town of Turner's Falls. And there's a basement bar called the wheelhouse. It's perfect. You know, it seats maybe 60 with another 20. So it, it should be full enough with no matter how many people come. And it's super intimate, low ceiling dive basement bar. Uh, they offered me a bigger space. I, I don't want that. And, it, and the other space had a raised stage and I didn't want that either. It huh. should be really fun. Um, I like a raised stage. Well, if I were up there performing myself, but this, I want it to be a little more intimate. It's raised like six inches. Um, when you, so the person who you brought up on stage, the first person you were talking about, you had just met him. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about risks for a second, because I was reading uh, Calypso, the piece uh, the other day, uh, not the other day, a few hours ago. Um, 
And so you took a risk bringing that person up on stage is my, is my point. And you let a stranger perform surgery on you in their home. We didn't do it in her home. She took me to, uh, she took me to an office and did it there, but she was a doctor. She wasn't a surgeon, but she was a doctor. And she said, you know, look, if I open you up and it looks like it's above my pay grade, we'll stitch you up and, you know, send you on your way. But I saw her. I was in, she lives in El Paso and I was there a couple of weeks ago and we went out to dinner. And you know what it was too, that she was funny. And when I met her, she was funny and she just, I immediately liked her. So I didn't have to talk. There was nothing really to talk myself into, you know, um, it just seemed like a really good idea to say yes. There are people we just immediately trust. Well, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, and a woman came, and she has her own company, and she makes cookies, right? So she said, I brought you a bag of chocolate chip cookies, and I can't eat chocolate. But I didn't say, I'll tell her that. I didn't want to embarrass her, right? Mm -hmm. And so I waited till she left. Until at, she was a pre-show signing, and I waited. As a post-show signing, I'm sorry, it wasn't D.C., it was Nashville, I Brought the, put the cookies on the table, and I said to people, would you like a cookie? Where did it come from? And I said, a woman baked, baked them for me. Oh, no, I'm not going to have one of those. It could be poisoned. And I just thought, you know, I'm so glad I'm not you. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I'm not. Why would somebody go through all that trouble to poison me with chocolate chip cookies? I mean, when you think about it, really. That's like, is there, you know, I bet, yeah. I bet you... I bet you two kids yeah. have had have had razor blades in their apples. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. But now you can't trust any apple. There could be a razor blade lurking inside of it. I don't actually think that there is. And I don't think that there are any more pedophiles at work today than there mm -hmm. were at any previous time either. I don't think there's any bigger chance that your child's going to be snatched off the street yep. now than there was in 1962. Well, it's so much more hyped now. Yeah. Right. It's just the fear industry. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you had told me, I wish I had heard that about you from you about the cookies before. Uh, one of the many uh, little bits of money earning I do is I, I am an academic coach at a prep school near here uh, a few nights a week. And I sometimes eat in the dining hall. And the other night I was eating in the dining hall and some kid had left a half a bag of sour Skittles. And I don't usually allow myself to buy sour skittles, but I really love sour skittles, and I really, I wrestled with whether like, did that student leave the sour skittles because someone spit in the sour skittles or something, and I didn't take the skittles. I mean, sometimes you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you would be right not to eat something like that. You know, depending <laughs> on depending on where you are. But I mean, I think to to apply all your fears to every situation, I don't know what that really serves ultimately. I mean, I feel like so much happens just if you say yes. Yeah. You mean in life? Yeah. Yeah. It's taken me a long time to get there. I, I just took a writing job that I didn't really have experience doing this kind of, you know, just just you know, writing copy for a college or something. 
and they said, yo, yeah, you can do this. And I, I immediately was thinking of ways that I would say, I'm, I'm not real. I don't, I don't think I, you know, but I just did it. Well, sometimes like I'll be doing a show and some drunk person will come up and say, I'm going to take it. I'm going to say it. You're going to say something like that. I don't, I don't say yes. Because everything inside of me says, I mean, I can't bear to spend 45 seconds with that person. Right. So, Well, yeah. That goes back to instinct, knowing who to trust. It, when you were talking about the reading, I was reminded of, um, do you know the uh, the writer Rebecca Solnit? No. Um, she's a great political uh, writer. She she uh, wrote the book, uh, the essay, Men Explain Things to Me, which has led to the, the word mansplaining. And, uh, but she's she's just terrific, and she... Uh, has an odd Facebook presence. That's where she kind of communicates with people. But she she wrote the other day about she wrote to a man at a reading, kind of apologizing but not apologizing for cutting him off because you say people are usually pretty agreeable and you you push the book back across and they're done. But this man had brought his manuscript mm. <laughs> and wouldn't let it go. And she's she's also very much about men get enough talking time <laughs> and so she she dismissed him and, and in this in this this post she wrote about how she both wanted him to know that, that she understood he wasn't trying to be in any way you know harmful but he was being inappropriate and she just wrote that on as kind of a little lesson <laughs> uh, uh on the internet but yeah she she's terrific oh so earlier when i was talking about things happening uh, slowly and then all of a sudden, not just bankruptcy and success, but I'm reading you at age mm, what were you, uh, 30 at this. And then I'm reading you now at the same time. And I'm reading the jacket copy for the new book, which says that you set your formidable powers of, of observation towards middle age and mortality. And I think, my God, <laughs> I, I'm a little. I'm I'm about eight years younger than you, but I I was in New York around when you were, and I was, and so I, I'm very much you know reading and thinking like, wow, the cliches of time flying are just so true. Well, well, one thing, like generally speaking, when a book comes out, I always thought it was your editor who wrote the jacket flap for your book, but but more often it's the editorial assistant who writes it, and so it's weird. Because I really love my editor. Mm -hmm. And then it's weird when the jacket flap would come in because all of a sudden then I'm the editor. And, and I have to say, well, this isn't good enough. And, well, this isn't your best work. But there's a guy named Paul Constant. I was just going to ask you about that. Go ahead. Well, he, he, uh, he used to be the book editor at The Stranger. Uh. And he's just a really smart guy. And so I pay him to write my jacket flap. And I don't, I don't want to be his boss either. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I say whatever you want to do and then send it to my editor and you guys can work it out. Um, because I don't have any concept of what my books are about and I have no concept <laughs> of myself as a writer um, or of my place. Uh, or uh, I, I don't know what my books mean. I don't know if there's a... I mean, I didn't realize until this morning that turtles are mentioned twice in my book mm -hmm. in different stories yeah i wrote down turtles yeah airports airplanes animals language yeah i mean 
I don't notice that stuff, but it's not my job to notice it. <laughs> it's not my job to be self-aware. <laughs> it's my job to write about myself, but it's not my job to be self-aware. But it was, it's funny because it's such tiny type, but it's the first time I've ever noticed a jacket copy with a credit. Oh, uh, you're probably right. Um, so there you go, Paul, yeah. Paul Constant. Well, I, you know what? I didn't want Paul to, I mean, he's a professional and, and I don't, I, I don't know. It just seemed, I don't know why, if, if you're going to work on something like that, why shouldn't you? Uh, one time I paid David Rakoff to write my book jacket, my flap copy. And then one time I did it myself, but I did it, I wrote a poem. No, was it a, one time I wrote a poem, and that was for the Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk jack, jacket flap. And then, oh, I, I wrote it for uh, When You Won't Go Up to the Flames, but it made the book sound like it was a mystery book. And I thought it was pretty <laughs> clever, but no one ever said anything to me about it. Um, yes. Well, I, I like that you sometimes will. You never feel the need to over-explain a joke, uh, which is great. Uh, restraint. I do. I do in person sometimes. Oh, <laughs> sure. Well, not explain it, but yeah. I mean, I guess I. You know what? I don't like to dissect the joke. You know, when people will. I there was something when I was on this most recent tour. There was something I read on something I read in the newspaper, and I laughed so hard, and I thought I can't wait to read this on stage. And it was an article in the Washington Post, and it, it was the day after Stormy Daniels appeared on television. Mm -hmm. There was an article about her being harassed online. And one of the hundreds and hundreds of letters that was written in in response to that comment said, um, you know, I'm not worried that Miss Daniels will, won't be able to defend herself. Anyone who's seen her films knows that she is certainly capable of taking it on the chin. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard and audiences groaned every night they would groan and i, I said i don't expl i don't understand this why aren't you laughing this is funny mm, and the I, woman came up and said i think i can tell you what your problem is <laughs> she said you need to say that mike tyson took it on the chin but that stormy daniels can take it on the chin while maintaining eye contact mm. and it's like something tells me that adding mike tyson to that is not going to improve his scene no it, it loses its pop um, but I see her point. No, no. It was kind of her way of saying that's not funny in a way. But it is funny. But I, but I think sometimes audiences were thinking, wait a minute, where does he come down on storm? Is that about, and it's not about, it's not a joke about Stormy Daniels. It's a joke about a porn actress taking it on the chin. Yes. But somebody said, you know what? I think that people are groaning because, Every woman in the audience is taking it on the chin, you know, and they're like, uh, you know, just what that feels like. And then somebody came up the other day and said, oh, do you mean taking it on the chin like balls slapping around the chin? I said, no, I think I'm just talking about calm on her yes. chin. <laughs> Cleared that right up. Uh, yeah. That reminds me of, oh, when I was <laughs> talking about, uh, about understating, uh, I'm wondering whether it was understatement or whether you really weren't getting something that might be the case, and that is why Amy's computer is... This is from Little Guy, the third essay in the book. 
-hmm. why Amy's computer is dirtier than yours when you search Google? Right. Somebody said maybe I have a protective thing on oh, my... I was thinking, though, it, it also kind of... Google is constantly spying on us and calibrating based on the searches we've already done. So you might talk to Amy about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is true. But, you know, I read that on stage one night. I was in East Hampton, mm -hmm. and I read that, and Brooke Shields was in the audience. Mm -hmm. And Brooke Shields said, I'm not 50. She was really nice. Mm -hmm. She was really lovely. But she said, I'm not 50. I don't know why you would Google women in their 50s and I would come up. But she was maybe like 49 at the time. She wanted to clear that up. Well, it's just one of those situations. And you think, what are the odds? You're going to mention somebody and they're going to be in the audience. And all I had said was that, oh, you know, on my, when I Google Amy, on Amy's computer, if you say, oh, what does a woman in her 50s look like? You get, you know, you'd think you would type in, what does the inside of a woman in her 50s look like? Mm -hmm. And if I do it, then I would get pictures of Brooke Shields and I don't remember who the other actress was, uh, smiling. And then Brooke Shields just happened to be in the audience. Is your friend Janet from the Peace Calypso ready for the Sedaris bump? Is her website ready? The, 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 the Wood Interpretation Society prepared? <laughs> well, she just had... That's so funny. I saw Janet a week ago, and we were talking about this. And she showed me some of her new work. And she said she was mentioned somewhere, and she hadn't gotten a bump yet. But I'm really hoping she gets one from the book. Her, Because what she does now is she just... Uh, for a while, she would get the plywood, and then she would, you know, color in the grain. But now she just, just studies it and decides what it is. And so I just was at her house last week in Omaha, and I looked at um, her new work. And, like, one was a chihuahua. <laughs> it was just a little piece of wood. Perhaps we should briefly explain what we're talking about here. Uh, do you want to? It's my friend Janet Carkeek, and she's an artist. And she has something called the Wood Interpretation Society. So she just looks, studies a piece of wood and will say, look, it's a raccoon looking in a mirror. And you're like, yes, yeah, exactly what it is. Which is mentioned in the title piece from the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how did you choose that piece? And how did you choose to title? Your pieces are often more reflective of the whole piece. Calypso seems it's a quick mention of a name that a cat could have. And it's the title of the book. Right. Well, because I wanted a short title, because my next book title is going to be long. I mean, the second part of the diary collection is going to be called A Carnival of Snackery. So I wanted something short. And none of the, I don't know, when I looked at the titles of the essays, you know, the, the, some of the individuals, like if I were to name the book after an essay, um, a lot of them were fine for titles for essays, but like Company Man, Now We Are Five, Stepping Out, A House Divided. House Divided sounds okay. Leviathan sounds okay. Um, but The Spirit World, in retrospect, that sounds okay. I don't know, Calypso just sounded sort of light and... But see, then I didn't think till later about Calypso, you know, the, the Greek story Calypso. Um, that, that takes place on an island. And then Emerald Isle, yes, where I buy this house. Mm -hmm. And see, the, the guy who did the book cover, 
he was thinking beach house, you know, naughty pine paneling. That that's how the cover would fit in with the title of the book. And it serendipitously all came together. And I hadn't thought about the the island of Calypso at all. Well, I should have probably put a little bit more thought into that before giving it the book title name. You know what I mean? You're right. It's a title. It's one mention in the book, and it's a stupid name for a cat. And that's the name of the book. Last time we spoke, I know I wanted to bring it up, but I felt self-conscious about it. I don't remember whether I did, but it didn't make it into the episode. So I think it didn't. You mentioned David Rakoff having written copy for you. And recently someone, besides David, who died, uh, someone died who I spent like the last few years. They were very old, but I spent the last few years, like I'd drive by their house and I'd see if lights were on. I'd never go knock if, unless I, I never visited and now they're gone. I have always, and it reminded me of, of their, those those people in life who you regret not having spent more time with, and then it's too late. But I uh, burned a bridge with him for a couple years after college. He showed up. Uh, I had moved to San Francisco. I guess it was more like <clears throat> six years after college, 10 years. And his first book was out, and he was doing really well. And and I went to the, went to his reading and... I felt like David blew me off. <laughs> I'm sure he was, you know, it was you know, new celebrity and it was weird. And, you know, and I had chips on my shoulder and I just was like, well, that's Wait, it. you felt like David Rakoff? Yes. Off? Which in retrospect, I was in my twenties. I was, I had a chip on my shoulder. Um, uh, but, and then I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I'll, I'd read him, but I, I didn't make any effort to, you know, be somewhere he was going to be or, and then years and years and years later, we reconnected uh, when I started a little nonprofit and he gave some books to and we had a drink in New York. And I was like, oh, what a waste of time not knowing this amazing person better all these years. So Yeah, because I was going to say, I would imagine that you misread that. Absolutely. It's just hard for me to imagine David being ugly to anybody. I mean, even if David, you know, if, if David and I, if David were to tell me about somebody who he disliked. And then that person walked into the room. David would have been lovely to that person. I'm not suggesting that David was two-faced, just that he had some of the best manners I've ever seen. I, I think he he had nothing but goodwill for me, and I was being like probably bitter and jealous at the time. But I'm older now. I'm a little better. <laughs> I did want to ask you what have you been? I know you like to listen to people talking on the radio. Have you been listening to anything that you'd want to mention? Um, well, I mean, not that it needs my help or anything, but I think that that New York Times podcast that they started doing, The Daily, is really good. They'll do a, they'll talk about something and I think, oh, I don't care about that, but they make me care. They're really good. But I haven't heard, you know, there are podcasts that people say, oh, you got to listen to this. It's really funny. But a lot of times it's just a bunch of people sitting around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Waiting for an editor to show up. I yeah, think. I will listen to those sometimes, kind of in a driving along way, and just come and go. I I have to admit, I mean, I don't think you're going to find it offensive, but I listen to theft by finding as I drive along, and I I go off on little flights of fancy and realize I've missed a couple months of entries, and sometimes I back up, and sometimes I just make it this kind of imagination scape. Well, a woman. I met a woman, and she. I got a letter from a woman, rather. 
and her mother, she listened to Self Theft by Finding with her 86-year-old mother in the car. They listened to part of it. Mm -hmm. And then they got to their destination, and her mother said, is it all? <clears throat> her mother seemed to enjoy it. And she said, is the whole book this way? Is it all that woman reading her diary? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did it change her? I wonder if her mind was just blown. <laughs> <laughs> or did her daughter and just to say me, yes? It would just be so different if it was a woman, yeah. you know. But it would be interesting to listen to it, like if it's a woman's story, you know. Did did you? I forget who told you this. Just uh, uh, someone at a show. A woman who wrote me a letter. Oh, okay. I wonder if she said to her mother, "Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's all her." Um, I have. Two questions that that thirty year old David made me want to ask you. One is that: Do you was there some point? Did you see yourself? Do you still see yourself, or imagine yourself as a visual artist who ended up writing, or did you always see yourself as both, or do you still make visual art for yourself? No, I don't make visual art anymore. But I mean, I realized. I mean, I realized pretty soon into whatever you could call a career I had at it that I cared more about writing than I cared about visual art. Mm -hmm. A short story that I would read would stick with me much more than a painting that I saw or a sculpture that I saw. And the other the other question was, have you and Amy collaborated on anything in the last couple of decades and would you ever want to? Um, we wrote a bunch of plays together. Right, I know. But I feel like that seems like it was... A while ago now. Maybe I'm wrong. It was a while ago, but, but it seemed to belong to that particular time, you know? I mean, and David Rakoff was a big part of that time. And we were all living in New York City, and La Mama, you know, allowed us to do whatever we wanted to do, whenever we wanted to do it, and was just there for us. And it just had to do with us being young, and us being here, and us being together in the same town, and... Uh, a smoking lot of dope. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It seemed to belong to that time to me. Like, and, 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 and it's not anything. And I think back on it really fondly, but it's almost like I could no longer do that again. than I could be on the swim team again. Were you on the swim team? Yeah. I forgot that. If I've read that. When, when I was a kid. Also, I went out to dinner one night with, um, I was out at dinner with some people, and uh, John Lahr was there, you know, the drama critic of the New York Times, of the New Yorker. And he was talking about somebody, and he said, playwriting is a young man's game, you know, or a young woman's game. And I thought, by and large, that's kind of true, you know. When you're young, you're pretty sure that what you have to say is very important, and people need to hear it. <laughs> and I, I don't in any way feel like what I have to say is important. But maybe I did when we were working on those plays. Yeah, but it just sort of faded. Are any of them published? No, we offered. They, people offered to publish them, but what made them funny were the people in them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think if if you were just put the words on paper and anybody else were to do them, I couldn't even bear it when somebody got sick and an understudy had to take over. Mm -hmm. I couldn't bear to watch the plays. So they were written very specifically for the people who were in them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you, I was just listening to you talking about when you had to fill in for someone and how 
miserable that was. Yeah, and that well, that's because I had to be the one on stage. I hated that, but. But, you know, like we it, would, it didn't get to the point like you know, we'd do a play and we'd say, what would you like to do on stage? What are your skills? Oh, you speak Japanese? Great. We'll write a scene where you speak Japanese. You want to dance? Great. You want to sing? Perfect. You want to write a song? Or should we write the song? And so they were catered. You know, we, we, we really paid attention to the actors that we worked with. And they were wonderful. And they were really funny. And, and if they came up with ad-libbed line that was better than the one that was written down, well, we'd go with their line. Sure. Because just, we we're just trying to serve the show, not our own egos in that respect. That's it, right there. Oh, I was glad to see the insult piece made it into the book, even though I don't think you said there was nowhere to publish it. Oh, yeah. But I've, uh, that line, when you reach out my ass and jerk off my shit, that's, that's gold. Mm-hmm. It is gold. <laughs> gold. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I also, it's funny, I don't think anything in that would make an editor blanch as much as, I'm wondering if, as as a Jew, I can say that there is an incredibly funny anti-Semitic joke in the book, in, in the piece, sorry, uh, that the flight attendant made. The flight attendant, uh, it was Christmas time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to kill it if you want to say it. No, it was, it was, it was a pilot told me that he... Um... That it was a he. This pilot flew the Miami. Um, he he flew Newark to Palm Beach, and one of the flight attendants. It was just a couple of days before Christmas, and they landed in Palm Beach. And the flight attendant got on, and she said, um, "You know, we remained seated until the fasten seatbelt sign had been turned off." Um, and I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, and to those of you already standing, Happy Hanukkah. And I, th- I believe she lost her job. Oh, I believe she would today. I don't know how long ago that was, but, you know, to an extent, again, I can get away with saying this with some people, I guess, maybe not with others, but it's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is yeah, what it is. Yeah, something told me she she called it, you know. <laughs> uh, right. um, yeah. Oh, two last things. Uh, one is, did you ever get back in touch, I never asked you this, with the woman who you sent the joking pro-Trump email to, who then blocked yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Mm-hmm. We've been friends for a long time, and so we, I, but I had to wind up calling her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Thank God. Uh, and the last thing, because last time we did talk about the, the man and his son and the pizza joke, uh, any, any stories from the road this last tour of of people doing funny or inappropriate things gosh i mean there was a lot i mean i'm just kind of trying to sift through it uh everything that happened on this last tour uh gosh i was just trying to i was just gonna mention something to somebody the other day and it flew right out of my head <laughs> um but I did, I'd heard some okay jokes. Here's one okay joke someone told me on this tour. That a man goes to Barnes & Noble and says, do you have that book about little penises? And the clerk says, I'm afraid it's not in yet. And he said, that's the one. <laughs> oh. On that note, is that are we going out on that? <laughs> We're going to go out on that. All right. But write me in a few weeks and let's try to get together. I certainly will. It's great to talk to you. You too. Thanks again. Take care.
I'm sure I don't need to tell you that you can find David Sedaris's Calypso, or I highly recommend, I highly recommend them both, but Theft by Finding is a great diary. It's great to listen to as you drive along wherever you're going, uh, wherever books are sold. You can find this show at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the digits one and five for the 15, and you can figure out the rest. Or on Spotify or pretty much wherever you cast your pods. Ed Patnode engineers this show. Christian Kandari made the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger. Jamie Berger.